G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. I'm Jono and joining me all the way from Louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, Amazon number one best-selling author, Ross Nichols. G'day, mate. Hey, Jono. How are you tonight? Doing very well. Thank you, my friend. What is the latest with your book, The Moses Scroll? What is this? Have we got some news that we can catch everyone up on? Well, it's still doing well, so thanks to the listeners. I know that quite a few of our friends have gone out to get the book so far. The positive or the feedback is very positive. People all over the world, I'm getting letters from uh, not only Australia, thank you to my Australian friends. Uh, I shipped to a friend in India. I wanted to make sure the book got to India, this friend of mine. Uh, who sent me one of his books. So I said, hey, we'll return the favor now that I have a book. But it's in Israel, all over, and the feedback is very positive. So uh, it's still selling. It's still doing well on Amazon. And uh, I'm excited. I'm very excited. And, and, and there there are some things going on but they, that we can't quite talk about. You know, we always have a secret. I know the listeners go, come on, you can tell us when the time is right. Uh, but there are some good things going on about the book that just can't quite talk about uh, yet. You know? Okay, well, we'll keep listeners on the edge of their seat and we'll get to that when we can. Last time we spoke about the Moses Scroll, Ross, we talked about the, uh, the misconception that there were 11 commandments in the Moses Scroll. Of uh-huh. course, the Moses Scroll... Actually, you know what? Um, there's a lot what? of... We, we assume a lot of knowledge here for listeners who have just tuned in. Uh, give them in a nutshell what the Moses Scroll is about. The Moses Scroll is a document that was discovered by Bedouins in the 1860s. We think around 1865 in a cave east of the Jordan. Uh, you know, there is a Wadi Mujib mm-hmm. uh, called the Biblical River Arnon, and there is a cave on that eastern side. According to accounts from the uh, from uh, Moses Shapira, he heard this story from some Bedouin. They they were in flight. They were running from their enemy. The Turks were their enemies at the time. They went into a cave. They find this uh, what turns out to be a bundle, and in the bundle, you know, they hoped it was gold, Jono. So they they pull. It was covered in this black, tarry substance. They unwrap it. Uh, there's linen around it, and they find 16 blackened fragments, leather strips with some strange writing on it. Mm. It's kept by one of the Bedouin. Of course, the other ones said, that's just junk, throw it away. One Bedouin picks it up. He takes it back to his tent. He becomes a wealthy man. When it comes into the possession of Moses Shapira, uh, all the, the backstory is told in the book, but I'll get to what the manuscript contained. These 16 leather strips, ultimately, it was determined that, that, that it represented two manuscripts, two manuscripts of the same scrolls. So in other mm-hmm. words, imagine 42 columns of text. Each manuscript would have consisted of roughly 21 columns of text. It would, each of these scrolls, if I can call it a scroll, would be about the size of the biblical book of Hosea, all right? So people can kind of orient, you know, you know how big the book of Hosea, it's not Mm -hmm. much. Uh, What Shapira recognized immediately is that this document bore a very close resemblance in most aspects to the biblical book of Deuteronomy. It's a Torah document, 
and it contains very limited material. So it has a little bit uh, of an introduction, if you will. These are the words which Moses spoke according to the mouth of uh, Jehovah mm-hmm. uh, uh, on the other side. And then it gets into a narrative, and the narrative gives a little bit of the wilderness journey. Mm-hmm. It go, And I'm just going through this quickly. Yeah. It goes into the account of the Shema, which reads differently, by the way. There is a copy of, uh, I say a copy of, there, uh, there is a, a report of the 10 words, which with some significant vari- uh, variations to what mm-hmm. we're used to. And then there are the blessings and the curses, which correspond to the 10 words. Right. And that's it. I mean, it's a very short document. It would only amount to a few chapters in the Bible. And uh, I put forward in my book that I believe that this is an early version of what became the book of Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. And Harvard professor, he's actually a professor in Germany now, but Harvard scholar Idan Dershowitz published his book, which we've spoken about, called The Valediction of Moses. Moses. Excellent book. Uh, And uh, and he, he puts forward that this is the oldest biblical manuscript dating it to first temple times it, mm. if if this can be validated which i believe it can obviously you would need scientific dating if we could find the manuscript mm. uh but according to uh my work as well as many other people who've done this before we have matthew hamilton and yoram right. sabo and shlomo gill and mm-hmm. yep yep and uh, I don't want to leave anybody out. Hanan Tegay, the son yeah. of the, the great Deuteronomy scholar, Jeffrey Tegay, wrote a book. Um, opinions differ, but at least uh, I'll speak for myself here. I believe that this is an authentic and ancient document, and uh, it contains some really interesting variations, some of which are around the Ten Commandments. Right, and we we talked a little bit about that last time we spoke, and the reason why we are dedicating so much time to this, and I I don't see us getting off this train anytime soon, is because if it is what the document claims to be, it absolutely deserves all of our attention, and uh, and we would put it to you, the listener, that it deserves at least your consideration um, if it is what it claims to be. Uh, So we give you the information, and you can evaluate. You can be, as you put it, Ross, uh, they can be the jury uh, in right. helping to decide whether this is potentially an authentic document or not. You and I are certainly compelled. Now, before we go any further, just remind everyone, uh, now we've, we've talked about the scroll, uh, and for those who mm-hmm. are just tuning in, who is Moshe Shapira? He's the, the champion of ancient manuscripts. Go. He really is. Moses Shapira is well known. Uh, he not only was an antiquarian and bookseller, as he is commonly called, uh, but he was an agent for the British Museum. So from the time of the 1871, when he really gets into antiquities, he already has what is considered the best shop in Jerusalem. When scholars of any any different scholar would go to Jerusalem, whether it's Claude Condor, the famous soldier scholar that's mm. uh, from the Palestine Exploration Fund, whether it's uh, Christian David Ginsburg, Herman Goethe, mm. anyone who is anyone in the 19th century, Jonah, when they go to Jerusalem, 
they're going to see Moses Wilhelm Shapira. He's always got some fantastic manuscripts. Mm. And you and I, by the way, our readers will be able in the next week or so, uh, we're working together, aren't we, on a, a blog post about his contributions to yeah. a sect known as the Karaites. It's the, Karaites. the greatest contribution to Karaite literature, and everyone knows this. Mm. So we we want people to recognize that Moses Shapira is uh, such a complex character, but as Yoram Sabo, the Israeli, uh, one of the foremost authorities on the in the world on Moses Shapira, he has a book that's only in Hebrew for the present mm. uh, called The Scroll Merchant. And, and I like that title because Moses Shapira happens to come across uh, some of the most important ancient documents, and uh, and he happens to come to possess what we believe is perhaps the most significant mm. manuscript discovery of all time. So because to me, he is, he's the man I'm with the reputation. Surprised. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's he's the right. man with the reputation. If you come across a document like this, he's the man to go and speak to. So of course, it comes into his possession, and uh, so many other incredible manuscripts that, uh, being a correspondent of the British Museum. Uh, he sells to them. They have still uh, a collection uh, uh, that, and, and that he Berlin supplied. And the Berlin Museum, by the way. And the Berlin and Museum. And the Berlin Museum. Yeah. You know, I, I was looking this week. I was prompted by what you sent me, your notes, as you began to study this, uh, particularly the Karite contributions. And and it caused me to really dig deeply. So he, he not only is he going all over the world, he goes to Cairo. Mm. He gets some of these Karite manuscripts from Cairo. Uh, and he goes to Yemen, he doesn't some, he, does he not? I think oh, he, yeah. He, oh, he goes yeah. to He's some very dangerous place. places. He's kind of an adventurer, yeah. really, to make a great movie. He is. He is. So yeah, it would. It really would. That is uh, um, Moses Shapira. So just to let everyone know the website, um, because you've mentioned upcoming blog posts, Ross. So the website is yeah. themosesscroll.com, com, and click on uh, the blog there to keep – in fact, you can even click on uh, keep up to date with notifications. Subscribe. So that's, that's what you want to do. And uh, when that blog post come out, comes out, we'll, we'll certainly be talking about that. But what we want to do now that you're all up to date, dear listeners, is just recap on what we were talking about last week. There's uh, a misunderstanding that the, uh, the Moses scroll containing, uh, as you mentioned, Ross, the Ten Commandments, the blessings and the curses, as we read in Joshua chapter 8, that Joshua copied down the law, the blessings, and the curses in that order. Uh, that's the way we have it in the Moses scroll. The blessings are missing from our copy of the Pentateuch. This is actually that's well right. known, but it's not uh, uh, It's not a secret. It's not talked about. It's not talked about. Okay. Uh, we talked about that last time. And, uh, and you talked about how, no, actually, there's not 11 commandments. There's a commandment that doesn't appear in the 10 that appear in the Pentateuch, but there's still 10 commandments. Right. Now, that creates uh, a mathematical um, a quandary, I suppose. People are saying, well, hang on, if it has an extra commandment, but there's still 10 commandments, what are you talking about? Right. And, I, and I felt that maybe we needed to revisit that and just add some clarification uh, because we do, in fact, have – I'm going to say something really controversial. Is it okay if I do that? Okay. Absolutely, if, let's do as it. If, as if telling everyone uh, that uh, the controversy that we don't actually have the blessings in our Torahs, in our Pentateuchs, we don't have the blessings, 
We have the curses. They, they can go. Listeners can go to Deuteronomy 27, and if they can find those blessings, it would help us out a lot because we don't see them. Mm, Only see them. the curses. Only yeah. the curses. Now, they are in the – if you want to know what it says, um, by the way, dear listeners, Ross's book uh, is available at Amazon, and he, and Ross has not just a transcription available for you there, but an English translation and an excellent one at that, and, uh, and, and they're available uh, for you to read <laughs> – I mean, because isn't by the way, Ross. By the way, just to um, go down a rabbit trail. So often, I'll I'll be talking to people that say, "So, what are you working on?" You know, you know that I'm 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 now a member of a new library in my area, and I love going there. Um, yeah, uh, one of my favorite places. And every now and then, I'll people will say, "So, what what are you working on?" And I'll say, "Well, you know, I'm working <laughs> on the this." Uh, and, and you tell them, you know, this scroll that is, you know, perhaps the Moses scroll. Perhaps this is uh, the scroll of the Torah of Moses that we read about in in um, Deuteronomy chapter thirty one that it gets placed beside the ark. What was in that scroll? Maybe this is it. And uh, what blows my mind is that people aren't tearing down walls to say, well, "What does it say? What does it say? Do you have a copy <laughs> of it?" Can I read it? You know, <laughs> but this should be the this should be the first thing that comes to people's minds, and the answer is yes, and it's available in Ross's book. Let's keep going. So, uh, not eleven commandments, but I'm going to say something controversial, and that is that uh, in our Pentateuch we only have nine. We have we actually only mm-hmm. have nine commandments. Uh, I think it's fair to say that. And what I'm going to do, Ross, is refer people who have their um, uh, Jewish study Bibles. Is a Bible that we. Uh, recommend there's a, there's a bunch of Bibles that we recommend. The Koran Jerusalem Bible is one of your favorite translations. I got yep. one on your advice, and it is very good. The uh, mm-hmm. the Jewish Study Bible uh, Oxford uh, publication is exceptional because of its study notes. Really, really good. Absolutely. Um, you and I use that a lot. Now, if we go to page three seventy six, it has a table there that shows how different traditions attempt to divide the 10 words as they appear in uh, in Deuteronomy and in uh, in Exodus to bring it to the number of 10. And there's three different ways that that is done. Ross, tell us about it. Okay. So first of all, I, I want to jump right into that, but I want to bring up a couple of points about the 10 commandments. You know, everybody uh, who is even nominally interested in the Bible, whether they come from a Christian background, a Jewish background, I mean, the Ten Commandments are absolutely the fundamental bedrock Mm. of all Scripture. Would you agree? I mean, is that a pretty fair assessment? Absolutely, it is. Here here we have, uh, now by the way, people talk about the Ten Commandments, but there are differences in numbering. But I guess the first thing to establish is the fact that the phrase Ten Commandments never appears in the Bible. Actually, in English Bibles, and whether that's Christian or Jewish, mm-hmm. the phrase Ten Commandments occurs in three places, all right? And people can can write these down, but you, you want to give them to the no, listeners no. so they can... Well, let, let, me, let me just clarify what you just said. Actually, just repeat okay. what you just said. Did you say it doesn't appear, but then it does appear? I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Is it in the English, it, but it's it, not in the Hebrew? It, it's only in the English. That's the phrase Ten Commandments mm. uh, occurs in English in three verses. But if you were reading the Hebrew, you would never find the phrase the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew. 
Now, what a does lot it of say in the Hebrew, and and how does how do we arrive at that in uh, in in an English translation? And where are those three it, places? It's, it's it's very interesting. Exodus thirty four verse twenty eight, hmm. Deuteronomy chapter four verse thirteen, and Deuteronomy chapter ten and verse four. If you're in an English Bible, those three verses and those three only will say the Ten Commandments. And so it has caught on in popular art. It's caught on in uh, media and everybody talks about the Ten Commandments. Well, Mm -hmm. what I encourage people to do is if let's say that that's right, just for a moment, Tell people to look at the quote-unquote Ten Commandments and count the number of commandments that are in the Ten Commandments. Hmm. You know, if you go through and you you actually do it. So the numbering becomes difficult, but we'll get into that. But the phrase in Hebrew, which is beneath uh, or behind the English, is actually aseret hadevarim, the Ten Words, the ten words. So it does. It some, does. Yeah. If I may interrupt, it does designate the quant the, the the quantity. There is ten. It does. It's okay. very clearly stated that there are ten. And and I'm being very literal with hadevarim, the words. But mm-hmm. it could mean you you could get the ten matters, the ten sure. things. But most naturally, devar means a word. word but it can mm. mean. A word as in a saying, not a singular word, sure. you know. Sure. So so these three verses are the only three verses which speak of the ten. This is like you and I love to do lists. We've always mm. liked to do lists. These are the ten. These are the, the ten words. This is the top ten. Which, that's right. Which the God of all creation, according to the narrative in the Pentateuch, Wrote with his finger. Yeah, he mm-hmm. spoke it audibly from the midst the of people. fire, from mm-hmm. on the day of assembly, and then wrote them with his finger on two tablets of stone. So mm. the question people should be, uh, or the question that people should have should be, what are those ten words? What are those ten? And and how do you, now remember, Jonah? We you our listeners know this. The Roman numerals that we see so nicely inscribed on these various pieces of mm. art are lacking in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So you have to wonder how do how you are they count divided? Them? How are they formally how are divided? They divided? That's it. That's right. So uh, That's right. what we have is three divisions. We have three traditions, at least in this table in the uh, Jewish Study Bible. And for those who don't have it, we are going to describe it. Uh, and that is, of course, the rabbinic Judaism. We have the uh, tradition there, and, and that probably also applies to Karaite Judaism. Uh, the um, uh, we have the the Protestant Church, and we have the Catholic Church. Now, most people would be familiar with uh, the fact that the Protestants and the Catholics count them slightly differently. Uh, yep. And I, I didn't know that um, Judaism counts it differently. Again, uh, how shall we begin mm-hmm. this? Well, I think uh, I think by going through, we can do it just like uh, just like the chart shows. Uh, I don't know if we shouldn't maybe post um, a link or take a photo of this uh, particular graph. What do you think? This table? Uh, it might help. Maybe to. we can do that. If people don't have the Jewish Study Bible, we really do highly recommend it. The the notes in this Bible are exceptional. It, it is a very good Bible. I think I know the best way to present this, though, Jonah. We if mm-hmm. we talk about order here, let's not put numbers on it yet. Here, here's what we basically have. 
these are consistent, at least in the order. So the content is the same. So first of all, I think the listeners know that we have Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. We have mm-hmm. uh, our two accounts in the Pentateuch, in the five books attributed to Moses, we have our only uh, view of these two uh, uh, of these ten words. Would you agree? That's yeah. where you go. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing about that, I'll say this before I get into the ordering, is that they don't agree. You you mentioned something they have controversial. Their own differences. Yeah, they they, have they their do own have their own differences. Yeah. So so let me put it this way: if you look at the Hebrew, because some might say, well, it's probably just a translation problem. Well, it's not really. Because if you go to Exodus and you count the words, you know, like from the beginning of the 10 words and you count the individual words that are part of the 10 words, you count them up, you get 172 words in Exodus. And if you go to Deuteronomy 5 and you count, you get 189 words, Hmm. considerably more Hmm. in Deuteronomy. That's primarily because the Sabbath commandment reads differently. Mm-hmm. Now, some people seek to make those problems go away. They, it's called apologetics. Yeah. We look for an explanation which is makes us feel comfortable. The reason we do that, Jono, is because these words, the Bible is not ambiguous here. It claims that these are the words which were spoken by God from mm-hmm. the mountain to an mm-hmm. assembled group of people uh, from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Well, why are they not the same? Question number one for another discussion, maybe. But once you look at if you back up and you just generalize, you have um, this uh, prohibition against other gods. You have uh, images falls in there. You have false oath, mm-hmm. the Sabbath commandment, uh, the commandment to honor the parents, the prohibition of murder, the prohibition of adultery, prohibition of theft, prohibition of false witness, and the prohibition of, of coveting. coveting. Yeah. Now, the differences, as the chart shows, and as most people can look up online, if you don't have this Bible, you could look up what's the difference in Jewish and, say, Catholic. Mm. Now, what, what most will say is that it depends on what's your number one and what's your number ten, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jewish, uh, traditional Jewish rendering or counting takes um, this, I am God, you know, I am Hashem, your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and so forth, that's number one. So it takes that, that initial introductory declaration and that's labels right. that as commandment number one. So I am the Lord your God. Uh, that's commandment number one. Number two then becomes right. uh, you shall have you no shall other other God. other God but me. That's number two. And then number three exactly. is the prohibition against idolatry. What happens in mm-hmm. uh, in the Protestant tradition the Protestant tradition says, uh, no, 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 no. What we have is no other gods as number one and mm-hmm. idolatry as number two. Uh, right. and, it, and it follows through, uh, you know, fo- false oaths, uh, Sabbath, parents, murder, adultery, theft, false witnesses and coveting uh, in yep. that order. But the Catholics go, no, 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 no. Hang on a minute. What, the way this reads is you have uh, no other gods plus idolatry. 
Uh, that's number right. one. That's number one. They mm-hmm. go together. Then you have false oaths, Sabbath, parents, murder, adultery, theft, false witnesses. And then what they do to make up the 10 is they divide the, the coveting law that the, um, the Jewish tradition and Protestants label as one. You know, the, the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. Uh, and they say, well, no, no, that's actually two. It says, you know, don't covet uh, your neighbor's wife. And uh, that, that's number nine. And, and number 10 is don't cover your neighbor's property. And so they divide up the last commandment into two, and therefore they have their 10. So all yep. three of these traditions do this. Now, they have liberty to do this, Ross, because there's no yep. clear divisions in- uh, That's right. Okay, go for it. And, and, and you're exactly right, Jonah. What they're trying to do is commendable. They know, because they love the Bible, these people, mm. I'm not going to say that these people don't all love the Bible. They want to know what are the 10 words. And so it becomes sort of a, a, a math question. You know, how do I reach 10? The reason that there are differences is not because one is uh, changing something. In fact, I want people, we need to put the link I taught 15 classes mm. on uh, the Ten Commandments uh, mm. some time back. I did a series on this and pro- mm. and produced a chart that shows the way that these are broken down in both Exodus as well as Deuteronomy. Mm. Uh, and so that might help people as well. But if you look at the Catholic and the Lutheran version, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting that they have to split coveting, coveting the wife and coveting the property in order Mm -hmm. to reach 10. Years ago, Jono, I remember when I first saw that and I thought, you know what? Look, this is so wrong. Look how they did this. Mm. But there's actually something to the way that they separate coveting wife and coveting property. But I would refer people to my chart because a different Hebrew word is used there. It's kind of interesting. But that's not, it still presents a problem on reaching 10 because, as you said, Jono, there's no clear division in the text which tells us how to count these. Right. You know, in other words, how do I know who's right? How do I know that the self-identification of God, I am the God which brought you, how do I know that that's not the first word, as the Jewish, rabbinic Jewish tradition says? And. And so as we mentioned uh, last time we spoke, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there is a very, very clear division in the commandments in the Moses scroll. We talked about that. Yeah. And we talked about, hey, don't get, don't, don't everyone, you know, start to feel too uncomfortable because all of this is in there. But in addition to that, it has a commandment. Number 10 is uh, do not hate your brother in your heart. And right. then people, I, I realized later, people must be going, hang on, but if, if it has all of this and it has an additional one, then why is there not 11? Because there's yeah. 10 and because of the divisions. So let's again talk about the divisions and how that works, Ross. Okay. Can I, can I at this point bring out that Moses Shapira, obviously, as he's working on his transcription, recognized mm. that there were differences? Can I bring this up oh, now? Should and, I go ahead and- You should do that now. And before, before we do that, for those who have just uh, tuned in, 
it's it's difficult for Moses Shapiro because he's transcribing from Paleo Hebrew. It's not available to him in in the Hebrew that he's familiar in. It's in a, in a, right. a, a very ancient uh, Hebrew, and it's very old, so it's very difficult to read. So he's painstakingly trying to <laughs> trying to decipher yep. the words himself. Uh, and there wasn't that much to go on. I mean, we talked about the Moabite stone, we talked about the Siloam inscription, but as far as paleo is concerned, um, there's there's not dictionaries and textbooks uh, available, but go for it. Yeah, so so one of the things that happens is in 1878, uh, when Moses Wilhelm Shapira comes to possess these 16 leather strips, as you said, he really begins to work on it. It's difficult work because... The manuscript has been, uh, well, quite honestly, the manuscript has been in a cave for probably um, a couple of thousand years. Oh, at least. And, and though, so at he, least. He's, he's going through this, as you said, he's taking a transcription as, as he tries to read it. He's brushing this special concoction that he has designed. He's tried water, he tries uh, alcohol. And he ultimately gets it where when he brushes with a soft hair brush over the leather strip, somewhere between the wetting and drying process, he's able to read the letters. These mm-hmm. letters uh, come to the to the fore, if you will. So he writes them all down. When he gets to the 10 words, he's blown away, Jono. Mm. He sees... Not only uh, he makes notes as he's going through and he says, not only is the order different, but the the wording is slightly different as well. And he notices that it's clearly indicated the number, the counting. Mm. And, and so he's excited. He's never seen anything like this. Remember, this guy is, as Yoram Sabo calls him, the scroll merchant. He's seen mm. countless documents, countless scrolls. He's studied the Torah. He's he's an expert in rabbinic literature. So as he works through this, he thinks, Jono, I've got to get this to another scholar to look at it and see what their opinion is. So he knows a professor uh, by the name of Constantine Schlotman, who is at Halle University in Germany. He takes his transcription as well as the commentary that he's jotting down as he works through this, and he sends it to Schlotman. And and so uh, Constantine, Professor Constantine, gets it. And one of the first things that really upsets this traditional Christian German scholar is this, Jonah. He says to, uh, he's, by the way, uh, Shapira sends a letter on the 24th day of September, 1878. Professor Schlotman, please look at this. Tell me what you think. Schlotman writes him back on the 7th of October, 1878. And here's one of the things he tells Shapira later recounts this. Mm. How dare I call this forgery the Old Testament? Could I suppose for one minute that it is older than our unquestionable, genuine Ten Commandments. And then he goes into other reasons why he thinks it's not true. Hmm. But this document could be. The question becomes, so let's let's look at Schlotman's objection for just a moment. He, he refers to our unquestionable, genuine Ten Commandments. To which, Jono, does he refer? Is he referring to Exodus? Deuteronomy or is he talking about Exodus? That's right. 
That's right, because they don't agree. So mm. having another version shouldn't be that alarming, especially if something makes sense. Now, you made a comment that I want our listeners to understand. Everything that we have here, though it's worded slightly different, everything that we have in the version in Exodus and Deuteronomy is there in the manuscript that Shapira uh, came to possess in 1878, but, um, but you know, slightly worded different, and it has something very significant. After each word, now I don't mean um, individual words, you know, I mean after each saying or each commandment, if you will, there is a, a similar phrase, an exact phrase that occurs throughout the manuscript, and this is what it is. In Hebrew, it's anoch, we would say anochi, but they didn't use the vowels in this document. It, we, I believe that it it is written in a time prior to certain letters uh, becoming, uh, falling into use for mm -hmm. vowel letters, you know. So it sure. says anochi, Elohim, Elohecha, mm -hmm. I am Elohim, your Elohim. After each word, it says that particular phrase. Now, here's another way that we know how to count these in Shapira's manuscript. In Shapira's manuscript, these 10 words, each new saying or each new commandment, each new word of the 10 words begins on a new line. Mm. All right. You follow me so far? So you've yeah. got two ways of making sure you're counting these correctly. Uh, each one begins on a new line, no matter how long the line was before it. So in other words, if there's still room on the scroll, that particular column, it doesn't matter. Whenever you complete a commandment, you begin a new line. And and at the close of each one, it says, Anochi Elohim Elohecha. Now, there's another significant, interesting point about the 10 words of this manuscript that Shapira came to possess. Between every word, and now here I mean literally word, uh, if it says, I am, Anochi, there is a dot. Elohim, there's a dot. Elohecha, there's a dot. Uh, these are called interpunks. Now, I know you know this, Jono, because you've been doing this with me for a while. Prior to the discovery of this scroll, no one knew that on a leather document there would be Paleo Hebrew, because nothing like this had been discovered prior to this, mm -hmm. nor were they familiar with the process of using interpunks between the words. Mm. Now, let me let me explain. We there is a tradition, even in traditional Judaism, that the Torah, when it was originally written, was written in a continuous script, which means that if you and I open up a Hebrew Bible today, we read uh, a word, and then we have a couple of ways to know that the end of the word has happened. We have final letters mm -hmm. that are used in some cases, but we also, it's not a continuous script. So the Bible, for instance, begins in Genesis. Bereshi, bara, Elohim, et hashemayim, et haaretz. Each of those words is separated with a space between the end of the first word and the beginning of the next word. Mm. This scroll was written in continuous script. No way to know where to divide the words 
you have to know how to read it. Right. You, you follow what I'm saying mm-hmm. now, except when you get to the 10 words, when you get to the 10 words, Jono, every word is, uh, you, you have a word and you have an interpunk, you have a word and you have an interpunk. Now I'm going to say one other thing that's a little bit, uh, deeper in Hebrew and some of our listeners are know this, but in, in Hebrew, if you if you attach what's called the direct object identifier, you, you know this phrase, et, et. aleph, tav. Hmm. Like in the example I use, bereshi, bara, elohim, et ha-shamayim, va-et ha-aretz, you, you have the et. Anytime that that occurs in the ten words, there is not a dot, there's not an inner punct, the et and the following word are included between those. They become one. All right. They become one. Now, the interesting thing about that is that in modern grammar, uh, a lot of times the et is connected by the word which follows it by a device that was devised late in by Hebrew grammarians and Mesoretic scholars. It's called a makaif. It, it's a binding and you, it connects the direct object identifier with the object, and they're treated grammatically as one word. So the mm. interesting thing about this document that we're talking about, which Shapira came to possess, is it treats these as one word and presumably in a very ancient manner. Now, now whenever if, people, if I can interrupt just for a second, yep. there was no precedent for for this grammatical anomaly? No. In paleo? Right. No, okay, there continue. wasn't. No. Beautiful. And and one other point, just to make it clear, um, again, the, there was nothing at the time, and we're talking about 1878, and of course the thing really hit the press in 1883, which we'll mm. kind of close with that. But but when people saw this, they, they had a lot of doubts about whether it was genuine. In fact, ultimately it was declared a forgery. Even today, People say, oh, it's a forgery because they said it was a forgery. Well, here's why they said it was a forgery. Number one, there's no way, Jono, that leather documents could survive in a cave, in a damp environment, you know, such as Palestine is what they said. Well, that's, that's cave, the words of Condor, leather, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Sacy and others made this comment mm. that it would, A, survive in a cave, uh, and then it was wrapped in linen, and if leather were able to survive, certainly linen wouldn't survive. And mm. and why in the world would they code in an asphalty type blackish substance? This is ridiculous. Then we have, for the first time, we see a script, Paleo Hebrew, which looks similar to, but not precisely like what was on the Mesha stone mm. or the Moabite stone, the Mesha Stella. So a lot of people at the time, they thought his detractors said, ah, we see what this forger did. He wants to play like, as Guta put it in his work, this manuscript pretends to be very old. Well, Mm. why do they say that? Because they say, we don't have any examples of Paleo-Hebrew on leather but they think that the forger has used as a template, if you will, a model, the Mesha stone, which was discovered in 1868. 
in, in, so they in go, a similar, well, isn't that convenient? That's right. In, in yeah, a similar, in a very not, not that similar far away. Place. So just to remind people, um, it, the, the Wadi Mujib uh, divides. Uh, so if you're looking at the Dead Sea, it's on the Jordan uh-huh. side, and uh, it's vaguely in the middle, the Wadi Mujib. It's a chasm that between uh, a mountainous area. On one side, on the lower half, on the southern side, you have Moab, biblical Moab, and on the other side, uh, on the northern side, you have what was biblical um, Reuben, the territory of Reuben. Yep. Directly mm-hmm. opposite that, uh, for people who have been there, and they'll get a better idea, is En Gedi. You know? So for people who have visited right. uh, Israel, like like we have so many times, and we often take uh, people there on the Tanakh tour, we'll stop at En Gedi, we'll walk up to the waterfall, uh, mm-hmm. you will point up there, that's where the cave is said to be that David hid in from Saul. Uh, and that yep. narrative there. If you turn around, you look over the Dead Sea, and on the other side, right. that's the Wadi Mujib. So just so, so people right. can place it. Okay, go. That's right. And so you're exactly right. In 1868, uh, a Protestant was traveling, and this is in the book as well, by the name of Reverend Klein. He uh, is shown the Moabite, Moabite. stone. But we've mm. we've we've got we've, we've got other things to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but so. They, one of the one of the charges is they think that detractors say he used this because the alphabet is similar. Now we'll point out that there are three letters which uh, exhibit differences than the Moabite stone, but the paleographer who looks at this today has plenty of challenges mm. which are beyond the scope of this discussion. But there are three letters that we know, for instance, that if if, and I don't think it was, but if this were forged, the person certainly didn't use the Moabite stone, nor did they use the Siloam inscription because the alphabet, if you will, does not match. Mm. What we see on these 16 leather strips exhibits some uh, characteristics that are slightly different. But the the general uh, paleographic analysis would lead one to believe that at the least, as Guta said, this manuscript pretends to be old. Mm. Now, here's the interesting thing, Jono. When if you look at the Moabite stone, people can look this up. I have a, um, a, a not a photo, but a sketch of it in my book. You'll notice and people can find this online if they look up Moabite stone that between each word is a dot, uh, which is called uh, an interpunct in, mm-hmm. in, in our language. And, and so, again, they said, well, he's just trying to make it look like the Moabite stone. Now, here's what we know now. I want to throw this in. Mm. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, as they're often called popularly, the Qumran Scrolls that were discovered uh, on the west side— Many of these also were discovered um, on leather. Uh, there were some written in paleo, but get this, Jono, the only documents that were written on leather in paleo, you remember the great Isaiah scroll is not mm. written in paleo. No. But the ones which were, we have 12 manuscripts which were discovered in the cache of caves, 11, now 12 caves on the west side. Um, of the 12 manuscripts that are written in paleo, all of them are attributed to Moses. Mm-hmm. All right. Secondly, um, when a manuscript is written in paleo, what we know now from Qumran um, is that 
there were the use of interpunks only in documents written in paleo. So another proof, mm-hmm. you could put a check mark by it and go, well, now here's the thing, Jono. If a forger did this, the one the things that they wouldn't know are things that wouldn't happen for another eighty years. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, the, so if you you've put it to me before that uh, not only is the forger brilliant, but he if if it is in fact forged, not only is the forger brilliant, but the forger is also a psychic. That's right. He's able to foresee the future, and and some might say, well, maybe he was. No, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it, and and so, by the way, Emmanuel Tove is is the man on the planet as far as textual criticism, mm-hmm. and and everything that I include in my book on what I call reasons for reexamination, Jono, mm-hmm. come from proofs from scholars like uh, Professor Emmanuel Tove, uh, Professor. Uh, Joan Taylor, these Dead Sea Scroll brilliant people that that uh, that we we study now. If we want to learn about mm. ancient documents, right? And every place you see Shapira's manuscript in my book, I ju- you basically put a check mark. Yep, 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 yep. So back to the ten words. Between the ten words, between every word of these ten sayings with the exception of words that are connected with the direct object identifier et mm. or the negative particle low. So if I say low in Hebrew, it means no. Mm-hmm. So like, no, you, you shall not commit adultery. The word for low and no, and the word for adultery would be together. They would not be separated by a, yeah. an interpunct. That is such an interesting thing because I remember having a conversation with uh, Nehemia Gordon. In fact, I think it was part of the Chorapel series when we were talking about the 10 words. Either it's in, obviously, Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. But he said, you know, there's two ways that you can read the 10 words. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and that is that you, it could say, uh, for example, steal? No, steal. You know, or, yeah. um, so, or, or don't steal. It, it could be like... It could be uh, a positive or it could be negative, um, mm-hmm. but that but that's not the case here because it's uh, it's joined to the next word is what you're saying via the interpunks. Yeah, yeah it's very clear. Um, I, and I'd I'd love to listen to that. I haven't. I know you guys did some wonderful things, mm. but uh, but one of the things that that we see. So here's an interesting point. Hermann Goethe is a young German scholar in uh, 1883 when Moses Wilhelm Shapira goes to Leipzig in Germany. He wants to show Goethe uh, the manuscript. Now, here's here's his main purpose, Jono. He says, I I need scholars to look at this. I want scholarly input. I want your Mm -hmm. honest feedback. You think it's real? You think it's not? Now, what we know uh, James Tabor and I, with the help of Matthew Hamilton and others, uh, Yoram Sabo made a comment in his book. I st- and I'll just say, Jono, I stand on the shoulder of giants, if you will. Yoram Sabo gave us an interesting clue uh, in his book, um, and it's only in Hebrew, by the way. But it says that one scholar from the 19th century was very vocal in support of the authenticity of the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And that's a guy by the name of Edward Meyer. Now, so when when Shapira shows up in Leipzig, he goes to see Hermann Goethe. 
Guta he knows because when the Siloam inscription was discovered in 1880, you know, you and I have walked through that tunnel. Remember, that's the mm. most fun you've ever had in Israel when we went through Hezekiah's <laughs> you, no, tunnel. Let me just clarify. You <laughs> walked through. I, I I had to hunch over and almost break my back to get through that thing, and I'll never do it again. But I'm glad I've done it. I know. We've, we've been yep. there. Got to be, well, be a little shorter when, than me. In, <laughs> in a little bit. In the <laughs> 1880s, when – now, the, the, the tunnel itself had been discovered much earlier, but in 1880 – the Siloam inscription was found intact on the wall towards the exit side, as we now get to it from the the uh, city of David. Uh, but this inscription was found, and Herman Guta and Shapiro worked together on transcribing this. Now, by mm-hmm. the way, uh, Moses Shapiro was engaged in 1880 in an academic debate about the Siloam inscription and how uh, it should be read in the paleo, you remember? And so they're debating this, and Claude Condor supports Shapira's reading Mm. against a guy by the name of Sacy and some other scholars uh, and says, you know, Shapira's right. And because Shapira is the one, by the way, that determined that the Paleo-Hebrew was saying that the tunnel was executed by a team digging from one side and another team digging from another, and that the brother met the brother. You remember how that's mm, translated. So this is where they met in the middle, yeah. That's right. And, and, and by the way, thank you, Moses Shapira, for deciding that for us. He's the one mm. that cracked the code, basically. So, um, but, but here's what they did. They, uh, when Moses Shapira goes to Herman Guta, he knew him from their work together on the Siloam inscription, and because when Guta would go to Jerusalem, he would spend time in Shapira's shop looking at the latest find that Shapira had. Mm. So he goes to him. Uh, Guta thinks immediately that it's authentic. How do we know that? Because uh, Yoram Sabo wrote in his book that these German letters from Edward Meyer tell the tale about the original uh, decision that it was authentic. We then, James Tabor and I, went and got those letters with the help of Matthew Hamilton, our Australian friend, and we uh, fed these through translator, and and we we got it all nailed down. And uh, I I'm not off topic. I just want to make this point. So um, when Edward Meyer tells in a letter to his teacher, George Ebers, that they both believe that this was an authentic ancient manuscript. Mm. One of the things that Guta does say in his work, which Dave and Patty Tyler had translated for us into English, was this. And that is, when he looked at the 10 words with dots between the words, he says in two places what if we're looking at what it actually looked like on the stone, stone tablets? tablets in the Ark of the Covenant? Now, Absolutely. Yeah. So get this now. We we didn't have any examples prior to, to the discovery of Shapira's manuscript of these interpunks being used on leather. They only knew of it from what's called lapidary and engraving like the Mesha Stila mm-hmm. or the Siloam inscription. So again, the detractors, those who wanted to say it was false, said, uh, okay, Shapira's involved in the Mesha Stella, Shapira's involved in the Siloam inscription, he wants this to look ancient, 
he's too dumb to know this is them that there's nothing like this on leather. It's only on stone. No one would have written like this. But again, when Qumran scrolls were discovered, the leather scrolls written in paleo also contained word dividers, the inner punks. Now, so, so, but just to to say in, in their defense, Ross, it's, it's because they had nothing to compare it to by which to authenticate uh, the scroll uh, it's a huge, massive, uh, literally world-changing event for them to say, yes, it is an authentic scroll. They would have had that on their shoulders as they're examining it. Um, Absolutely. And the other two uh, factors, as, as you've pointed out, is that uh, it's it has significant differences, mm-hmm. though you know a great deal in common with what we have, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, there are significant differences, and and they just couldn't believe that anything would last that long because, as you mentioned, it's it's another eight decades before the Dead Sea Scrolls are unearthed. So, in yeah. their defence, in their defence, you can see that the safer uh, uh, position is to declare it a forgery. Um, yeah, there are other works at, at play in this decision, which you touch on in your latest. Uh, article on your blog, which I'll let people again that they can go there. It's uh, themosesscroll.com. We don't have time to go into that now, um, but I just wanted to touch on that. Let's keep going. Yeah. So the tent, you know, I wanted to give this quote. I love this quote from Moses Shapiro. It's on the cover of my book. Um, he says, The tendency of showing great scholarship by detecting a forgery is rather great in our age. And so it is to this day. Whenever it's easier, for someone to say it's a forgery than to do the work and suggest that it's not. Now, mm. but you make the point, and I make this in my book, there was nothing with which to compare it to. If you were to bring back uh, Herman Gutta and Edward Meyer and Christian David Ginsburg today, and you said, oh, hey, yeah. guys, you know, then they would say, well, my goodness, this is another ancient scroll, just yeah. like you found it. It wouldn't even be a question. That's, that's very fair. I, that, that's right. And I've never thought of it that way. And that's a very, very uh, fair thing to say. Um, but, but unfortunately, you know, we don't, they didn't have the, um, the advantage of hindsight, nor did uh, Moses Shapiro. And when he got a letter back from Schlotman in 1878, he also felt the weight of, of, uh, what this could do, uh, what this could mean, and if it's not quite—I mean, it, it, it's a—it's a big deal to declare mm-hmm. something like this authentic and then put it out to the world. When it when it eventually arrived uh, in Europe in '83, uh, and we'll get there, it became front yep. page news uh, for very Absolutely. obvious reasons. The the Prime Minister of of, of uh, England of, of Britain came to view it for goodness sake. So That's right. he he felt the um, uh, the concern, and he decided to do what in '78. Well, he he decided when he got back the letter, one other point on that, uh, just to make the point clear, Franz Delich is well known as one of the great Hebraists of, of the 19th century, a prolific writer. Uh, he also happened to be a, a Christian scholar, very involved in um, uh, how would you say, uh, evangelizing the Jewish people. I mean, mm-hmm. so, but... So whenever whenever Franz Delich he happened to be with Schlotman uh, when the letter from Shapira arrived, and together they wrote a scald a scolding 
letter back on uh, the the seventh uh, of October, eighteen seventy eight. And and they basically said, how dare you to suggest that this is older than our mm. Ten Commandments? Also, one other point, Delich is quoted as saying, don't touch our Decalogue. Mm. In other words, you know, you've really crossed the line here, yeah. boy. So they, they scold him. He takes it. Now, here's something we need to recognize about uh, Shapira. Shapira is a fundamentalist, meaning he believes— that the Bible as we have it is is the inspired, inerrant word of God, basically, mm-hmm. right? So he he takes this very personally. And you know, he he says, I became irresolute. That's the word he uses. I have mm-hmm. his letters. And he says, you know, he began to wonder, because remember, Jonah, you made the point, he doesn't know, he wants to know, is this could this be real? You know, because he's never seen anything like it, and he knows scrolls way better than mm. most other people. So he finds it a little bit alarming that there are differences between this manuscript and what he knows uh, beyond the differences that he recognizes between Exodus and Deuteronomy, even. This, this is remarkably different. But but he, he wants these scholars to look at it and make an assessment because he really wants to know. Is it? In fact, he says this. This is for scholars to decide. Help me decide. Mm. So when he brings it to Europe, uh, you know, that's what he wants. So when he gets the letter back, Jono, he says, I become irresolute. Perhaps it is a forgery. I don't know. So he goes to Berg, Bergheim and Company Bank in the old city. It's on David Street. And, and he goes to Mr. Bergheim, uh, who manages the banking business there in the old city with his two sons, Peter and Samuel. He says, put this in a box, you know, like a gold. Uh, mm. a, it's called a gold box in, in like a the safety German. safety deposit box or something. Yeah, a safety deposit box. Let's put it there with some other valuables and leave it alone. It would that, that, that speaks volumes to me, by the way, Ross. Like he, no yep. doubt, as someone who deals in uh, in manuscripts – and many, many of them, uh, and has a, a shop with with valuable um, uh, products there that he would have his own safe in his own shop, no doubt. But this is yeah. something that he that he feels, if it is genuine, uh, it may be exceptionally valuable, uh, certainly controversial. He puts it yeah. in a safety deposit box in a bank vault in Jerusalem, and he yeah. leaves it there for five years. I mean, the other thing to to be recognised here. Uh, in addition to all the points that we've we've already mentioned, is that this is a um, these are all very very learned men that are considering these things and and to consider such an explosive document uh, and to validate such a document could be the end of one's career if uh, oh, yeah. if, if public no blowback doesn't work in their favour. Um, so mm-hmm. that, that's another reason why people would be very very careful. I, and like I, I even seem to recall that um, there was some. Uh, and you might be able to recall the quote, but uh, some of the Berlin uh, uh, scholars even almost cursed uh, Shapiro for bringing it to their attention, um, forcing them to, to to consider it. In any case, he leaves it in this bank vault for uh, five years. And what is also fascinating is the reason why he decides to bring it out. Let me let me point before you you even have to answer that. Let me say one other thing that's interesting mm. about this document. If you look at Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, 
Remember, Jono, these are the words according to the text, according mm. to the Bible in both of these places. These are the words which God spoke, right? Yeah. If you read uh, either version or both, I encourage reading both, you, you have something interesting here. Um, you do have some first person as if God is speaking, like mm-hmm. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord, uh, I the Lord am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You have no other gods before me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as you work your way through, um, it switches to where it's, it's not, yeah, it's in the third person. For in instance, person. verse 11, you shall not swear falsely by the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not clear one who swears falsely by his name. Mm. Now you think, well, I don't know. But the question becomes, did God speak in the third person? Now, don't the rabbis address this? Like well, they say, maybe Moses spoke part of them or something. Yeah, well, no, I mean, the, 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 there's a story behind that. And the story is that this is a rabbinic story that, uh, that God spoke the first two. Uh, he began to speak. The people uh, rushed to Moses and said, "We're going to die." In fact, uh, the first commandment was spoken, and they did die. This is now. This is mm. not in the in the Torah, people. But yeah. this is. Yeah. Uh, they died. They were revived by angels. God spoke mm. the second commandment. They died, and they were revived by angels. At which point, they went. You know what? Don't like this dying much, Moses. Can you just go and receive the words? And whatever he tells you, we'll do it. It's all good. But we just don't want to. If this is going to continue, this whole dying part is not much fun. The problem. The yeah, problem with that. It's too much now. Now, some people don't find that a satisfactory explanation, but that is that is the tradition. The difficulty yep. with it, Ross, if I remember correctly, and I don't have it in front of me, but where it switches from first person to third doesn't even agree in the two in the two that's words. Correct. Have you noticed that? Yeah, <clears throat> that yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem, but that is the um, that's the tale behind it. Well, let me so let me bring up something interesting. I'm now in Exodus chapter 20, John. I've jumped on you. Put another finger in Deuteronomy five, but <laughs> okay. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy five disagree as to the reason for the Sabbath. You know, uh, in Deuteronomy's version, in in basic language, it has to do with the redemption from Egypt. Whereas in Exodus 20, it has to do with the creation of the heavens and the earth. Now I'm going to read. Deuteronomy chapter 20, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. And he, third person, rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The interesting thing about this manuscript, I believe, is the earliest. It would be closer to the Sabbath commandment is closer to that which we find in Exodus, though most of this document that Shapira came to possess tends to agree more with Deuteronomy than other mm-hmm. books, though it does have some things from other books as well. But in, in, in particular, dealing with the 10 words, the Sabbath word, the Sabbath command, the Sabbath mm-hmm. saying, aligns itself more with Exodus with one very interesting point, and that is, number one interesting point, is that the Sabbath is moved up in the order to the second word, and the entire ten words are communicated in the first person. Mm -hmm. There is, now listen, Jono, there is no other none 
In in Hebrew, we would say en od. There is no more any other ancient document which has the ten words communicated in the first person mm-hmm. on leather in paleo with interpunks as something which is written in stone. Now, by the way, the rest of the document doesn't have these. There are other interpunks, but they are not used every other word after Mm. each word as they appear here. This seems to be, as Guta said, what if we're looking at a representation on leather of what it must have looked like on the stones mm. themselves. Mm. And 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 it's in the first person. It's in the first person so, throughout. Now we can we can either talk about the ten words or we can make people curious and go ahead and discuss what and then kind of close out this program with what made Moses Shapira after five long years. Why does he go to the safety deposit box, which is designed Mm. to hold gold and other valuables, and pull it out? And maybe this would be a good segue into our next class. I tell you what, I think I think what we need to do because we've we've almost taken up all of our time is just to remind the listeners that once again that uh, as you just said, and and this ought to make people tear down walls to go and see what it says and buy your book and read it for themselves. But what if this is actually? a representation on leather of what it looked like on the stone tablets. It's in the first person all the way through, God speaking, and then the blessings, which you don't have in in your Pentateuch, we don't have in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, uh, the blessings are there, that each blessing uh, finds itself next to a commandment, they correlate exactly, and then there is a curse that does exactly the same again. You've got all of yep. this in your book, and I would highly recommend people go and get it from Amazon uh, and get into this because it is uh, <clears throat> potentially the most important historically. I mean, how, how would you say it, Ross? I, I I think you're right. I think that this is. Um, I believe. I came to believe that this is the singular most significant manuscript discovery of all time. Of all time. Beyond all a time. doubt. Okay. Beyond doubt. So, so and, dear listeners, and, you need and, to be... Yep. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, and if somebody goes, I don't know, I mean, who is Ross Nichols? Well, it, it, again, just to remind people that unbeknownst to me, two weeks after I published my book, I had no idea that a Harvard scholar was going to publish a book which said, uh, in a more academic way, what I put forward in the Moses Scroll, in his uh, The Valediction of Moses, he claims outright that this is the singular most significant manuscript discovery of all time. Mm-hmm. Look, so if, if this is real, Jono, if this is authentic, let me just make this point clear. If this is an authentic document... And it you and is, I believe and that it, it is. And, and, and we do. This is... I mean, think about the manuscript discovery of the Isaiah scroll. Look, I'm a f- I love the prophets, and the prophet Isaiah is one of my favorite. But this, if this represents the little scroll that Moses wrote with his own hand, mm. I mean, are you kidding me? Mm. That the foundation of Judaism and Christianity, and you know, to some degree, people could argue that point. But I mean, everything is based 
on these words which were spoken from Sinai. And again, if Exodus and Deuteronomy don't agree, then I want to know what was spoken from the midst of the fire on the day of assembly by the creator of heaven and earth. You tell me Mm -hmm. what that was. And I think this document does. You mentioned the Isaiah scroll. I'm glad you brought that up because last time we were there uh, with the Tanakh tour, uh, it was brought to our attention and uh, Kevin, was it Kevin Mercer? Maybe so. He was certainly on the tour. Yeah, I think it was. And I I think it was he that brought it to our attention that uh, even the Isaiah scroll does not really perfectly agree uh, with what we have in our Tanakh. Oh, no, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know that for a fact. I mean, I've studied, and, and, you know, I used to say the party line was, well, it's, you know, it's pretty much exact letter for letter, but it's not. There are significant variations this, so, uh, between the Isaiah scroll and our Isaiah. Yeah. And to highlight one of those, um, <laughs> it was a funny thing, because uh, I didn't get to look at this, but I was told as we were leaving, oh, you know, it says uh, in the Isaiah scroll, well, in our, in our Tanakh, it says, holy, 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 uh, the Lord God Almighty, and uh, uh, three times. But in the Isaiah scroll, it says, holy, holy, only twice. And I thought, well, that's mm. fascinating. I mean, that's the oldest example that we have, so which one is correct? And as Toby yeah. and I were, were walking away and we were um, making sure that we had everyone, we were at the back of the line and we were talking about this, and I said, are you aware of that? And he goes, I don't what? <laughs> and I said, well, this is what yeah. I've been told. And he goes, no, 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 we have to go back and look. So both Sophia and I, we go back to the scroll and we're searching on the scroll to find it, you know, all the many chapters that yeah. are there. And you've got, he, 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 you know, obviously reads the Hebrew, he finds it, he reads it, it's there only twice. And he goes, well, I didn't uh-huh. know that. And I said, well, which one do you think yeah. is correct? And he said, well, I, I, I can't say for certain, but I'd have to say the, the copy that we have in the Tanakh, and this may be an omission, but how do we really know? But at least now we have the information uh, and and we can you know we're informed and we can uh, look into it and come to a conclusion. You want yeah. to do the same, dear <clears throat> listeners. You want to do the same. You want to look at this. You want to read it, and you want to be um, uh, be able to make a, an informed decision. Now, what we were going to talk about, <laughs> yeah, is, and we're going to have to leave it. This is going to be another program all all of itself. But the so reason maybe we why, don't even tell them what we were going to. Are you going to tell them? You gonna- I think I'm going to tell them. In fact, maybe we should put a link so that they can read it and be up on it by the time we get to uh, talk about it next week. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Oh. I think you're giving them too much, John. You think so? I think you're giving them. Yeah. Right. I think we need to leave them. Listen, listen, listen. Here's here's what I'm thinking. They're okay, listening. They're on the edge of their seat right now, yeah. General. Imagine, look out there. There are hundreds of people who are sitting there going, "Come on, thousands, right? Thousands of people, thousands, thousands." Yeah. And and here's what we ought to do though, because here's the thing, we ought to just say five years, mm-hmm. perhaps the most significant manuscript discovery of all time, Bold is time. resting in a box in the Bergheim and Company Bank in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. in the old city, and years. something comes across, Shapira comes across something, he says, I've got to go back and get that document out. Mm-hmm. This thing could very well be ancient and authentic, just like I thought it was. And now, because of his discovery, five years later, he now knows what he's going to need to bring it to the world, to the people like Schlotman and Delich. Mm-hmm. And he's going to say, uh-uh, boys, you were wrong. And this is significant. I think we mm-hmm. leave it right there. That's I think I'm we doing. leave it right there. That's it. We'll leave you on the edge of your seats, dear listeners. We'll be back this time next week to talk about what exactly that was, because it really is fascinating and significant. We're going to do another, can I say we're going to do another book review? We're, we're doing a lot of book reviews. Uh, Let's but do this it. Is, 
It, it's it's a book from uh, let's say how many years ago? That's like one hundred and sixty-one years. That's all I'm going to tell them. One hundred and sixty-one year old. That's right. Okay, I'll give you one hundred sixty-one year old book that. review. Okay, we're doing that. Thanks for listening to your listeners. There will be a link under this post where you can purchase the Moses Scroll by Ross Nichols on Amazon. Get one. Get into it because we're going to be talking about this for some time yet. In the meantime, thank you, Ross. Hey, thank you, Jono. That was fun. I'm glad. Look, I'm so happy that we didn't give them too much because, look, I mean, that, yeah, you got to give people something to look forward to. Have a beautiful week. <laughs> you can't miss next week's show. Okay, bye-bye.